I'm Andy Kesson, and this is A Bit Lit. Founded at the beginning of the UK lockdown, A Bit Lit is about conversation, celebrating and exploring theatre, literature and creative work across all periods and of all kinds. We've talked to professional wrestlers and about Ghostbusters and medieval sex positivity. We've looked at the histories of race, gender and sexuality. We followed migrating coconuts and the history of wine and cheese. We've gone from Jane Austen and Shakespeare to EastEnders via the history of early television, young adult fiction, photography, animation and documentary making. And with over 100 films already, many other subjects as well. Join the conversations at our website, abitlit.co or on YouTube and follow us on Twitter at abitlit. Alison, hello, how are you doing? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. Yes, for the most part. (laughs) Um, We're really delighted to have you with us. Thank you very much. Um, Pleasure, thank you for having me. We are starting each film by asking contributors just to introduce themselves and give us an overview of their work. So would you mind doing that, please? I don't mind at all, as long as you've got half an hour. Um, (laughs) My name's Alison Bomber, and I'm a text and voice coach. And what I usually have to do is then go on to explain (laughs) what that is when people ask. There are are lots of angles in terms of voice coaching. Obviously, fundamentally, there's vocal production and breath and the body and all of those things. Uh, There are specialists in accent and dialect work. Uh, Quite a lot of people's immediate response to voice coaching is to kind of go my fair lady and elocution and speaking properly which is pretty much the opposite of everything I believe in the notion that there's a proper way to sound uh it's it's a bit of a frustration to me that I operate from what's known as received pronunciation RP this sort of standard British accent which for many years has been regarded as the right noise with which to do Shakespeare and of course it's you couldn't come up with a sound further from the noise that Shakespeare would have heard from his performers <laughs> than this kind of sound. So I'm not an accent and dialect specialist. I'm, I use, obviously I use breath and vibration and taking things into parts of the body because when you're working with an acting company, that's part of the job, getting the kit fit uh, to, to take on a theatre, to take on this text. But for the most part, the bit that I have dived into as my specialism is is text, is words, is the language, with a specific focus on Shakespeare. Um, and I've been lucky to to be able to focus on that through the work I've done. In the dim and distant past, I was a an actor and singer, performer myself, uh, and then made the transition uh, and spent... I think seven years full time with the RSC as text and voice coach, and am now have now been freelance for about or slightly longer than that. So I now continue to do some work with the RSC and uh, also around the world with theatre companies, um, but almost exclusively working with Shakespeare. And the kind of shorthand I use for what I do, because <laughs> it varies from production to production. It's always collaborative, so it's based on individual directors and actors and the space you have in the room to do what you can offer yeah. uh, is to try to bring 21st century actors and this 400 year old language into as dynamic, organic and brilliant relationship as possible so that they can be at home in all the things that are offered in the text uh, all the adventures, all the possibilities, all the things that are thrown up, but to have it be part of their own 
vibration their own physical self and those connections between the body the voice and the imagination and having those channels open to really be available and responsive to those words as they move through you and out towards an audience wow thank you very much so ish ish <laughs> that, that trilogy if that's the right word of of voice body and imagination you're thinking about there's also that relationship between a performer now and a text then an old text and ha yeah. and I don't know if you if this is what you if this is how you would describe it but it sounds like you you think that you're almost kind of bridging those two those two things um, conduit, conduit. <laughs> well you know it would be nice to think of that I mean yes an an extra an extra tool in the rehearsal process that actors can deploy if they wish to to build how they experience how they explore the the language of the plays yeah thank you and then i love the fact that you said that um received pronunciation is not uh, quote the right noise uh, <laughs> and it makes me want to ask what is the right noise <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a there's a lot of work that goes on. Uh, ben Crystal, David Crystal's son, has done lots of work on uh, original pronunciation and and people diving back down to try to unpick, unpack from rhyme schemes, from all those sorts of things, the kinds of noises that the original speakers of these scripts might have been making. And one key difference between a received pronunciation accent and probably the noises they were making, or almost certainly, is uh, is is R, <laughs> is the rot what's known as the rhotic R. So uh, if there's an R on the page, then there would be an R in the actor's mouth. Um, in my world, the word war, W-A-R, has no R curl to it. Uh, in lots of regional accents, both in Britain and America, you would get a war. You, you get that R happening. And then if you go to something like the spelling in the first folio, where the word war is spelt not only with a capital W, but W-A-R-R-E, you're kind of thinking that the noise that word would have made in one of those mouths is more akin to war. <laughs> so the muscularity, the, the extra vigor that, that is in that kind of sound. Yeah. There's also the delight of orthography, as, uh, as various characters amongst Shakespeare would have it, the relationship of spelling and noise. Mm. Um, the, the aspirated question words. So we spell where, what, when, why with a WH. And the chances are, again, that in the mouths back then, you would have heard both the W and the H. Where, what, when, why. And if you think again about the energy required to ask those questions, and you get speeches where a character is questioning, 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 the energy off the diaphragm from the center of the body to want to know, to need to know these things becomes far more acute. And I'm not suggesting that, that we should be doing that, but I am suggesting that it is worth at least playing with at some point during your encounter with the language as you work on, on whatever it is you happen to be playing, to just feel that physical presence of the words in your body and, and understand the information that that can give you about where that character might be at that point in time. Thank you. I love the idea of understanding the presence of, um, of words in your uh, in your body. Um, I'm also a little alarmed that less than 10 minutes in, we have literally pronounced war in this video, which feels like an announcing war. But anyway, 
Um, let's not do that. <laughs> well, it is one of those words that, you know, in terms of the size of it, again, the, the relationship between what you see on the page and what happens in, an, in a thought and a sound war can sound pretty ineffectual and, and on the page it's three little letters and you don't really notice it very much, but in the mouth and in its conception, there could hardly be a bigger word. Yeah. Um, and so that that diving into the minutiae, and it really is, you know, I sometimes almost go literally letter by letter, uh, picking out all those things that if you were writing an essay, you would probably ring with your pencil, the alliterations, the, the, the little internal rhyme schemes. But that if you have those sounds working on you, if you are responsive to their ability to change you in the way that music operates on us. Yeah then again you get to go on journeys that perhaps take you to more profound places there's a there's a huge difference between a sentence full of delicate high vowel sounds a e i e repeatedly that takes you to a different place than the repeated sounds of ooh or oh and if you take your time in that they take you on journeys you end up having to do less work as the actor if you are open to the work the words can do for you yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. And we exist in a culture which often thinks of language and words as kind of immaterial and thinking about how, where they sit in the body, their implications for the, not only the body of the speaker, but the body of the listener. Um, and I mean, I often think of, of, of language on stage as a kind of prop in that it's literally a physical thing on a page which an actor inserts into their body, into their neurons, and then brings <laughs> on stage with them, hopefully. <laughs> and yeah, then releases them. <laughs> yeah. And you're reminding us of that as, a, as, as an acoustic, physical act. Yeah, and I think there's, it, it's something I tap into quite a lot. My, my work tends to be very physical with the body, but also remembering that sound waves have a physical, as in, yes, real, but also physics presence in the universe. They're not, you know, I talk about sending a thought through space, um, uh, attacking somebody else with a thought. And that's, not, yeah, there goes my hand through the, through the computer screen. Um, and that that's not kind of arty farty, airy fairy actor nonsense. That is about a physical thing traveling through space to encounter somebody else's body. And why wouldn't you send them the most tangible, the most, uh, exciting kind of noise that you can to to move their body you know we talk about being moved by a play mm. and that that should be a real thing I should be vibrated by what is going on on stage I should be moved by it and that's that's heart and body and head all of it that's you know <laughs> and imagination you said at the outset as well could you tell yeah. us a bit more about about those connections Oh, well, uh, again, this, the mapping of an idea out onto a larger space, again, is something uh, at the RSC, both spaces, both main spaces now, the Swan and the main house, operate in uh, a deep thrust. So you're talking about an almost three-dimensional space uh, with audience members who may be above you, who may be behind you, who may be to either side of you. Uh, and one of the things that can be really useful for an actor to really take on that space, to be reaching that whole space without feeling you've got to bellow or you've got to somehow be rotating the whole time to meet everybody, is, is a kind of sense of three-dimensionality. And that's a three-dimensionality of imagination. And it, it exists in the language. The language is three-dimensional. From the very basics of 
the cosmological truth for an Elizabethan of heaven is up there, hell is down there, the rest of us are kind of on the middle plane. But it means that if you have the thought about God or the gods, if you've got stars and moon and sun, there is something that elevates immediately the imagination into the space. And that when I'm speaking within that space, I can map my own mind out into that world so that something that is happening in my frontal cortex here becomes something that happens in a in a more distant frontal cortex up there in the gallery at the front that an idea can come swooping in from behind me which engages not only my back muscles but also a vibration that travels from this member of the audience who's stuck over here upstage of me who's yeah. only got my shoulder at this point in time but is nonetheless included in that thought because it is something that has just struck the back of my head as a fresh idea and it's coming in so that those imaginative possibilities of ideas happening out there as, a, as opposed to merely in here, so that everybody becomes complicit in those thoughts. Everybody enters that idea. Everybody is included in that thinking. But then also the, the really deep relationship between <sighs> inspiration and inspiration... A, a fresh breath for a fresh idea. It's a glorious coincidence of speech that, that those two things go together, that I, that I need fresh breath for a fresh idea that strikes me. Um, that resonance, we talk about the resonance of an idea. That, that's a very resonant thought for me. It takes me back to these memories. It opens up these ideas. But the literal resonance of the body and, and what parts of me resonate with a particular idea. We, we tend to lock away nasty things deep in the belly. Uh, and keep them down there and if we start releasing those thoughts and those ideas different parts of us start to vibrate because movement vibration is movement if we are tense we're shutting off vibration it can't travel in us if we can find ways to release into those different places an idea will literally vibrate in a different bit of the body so that we and we are interconnected human beings these things feed one another it's another of the great joys of this work that you can you can enter it from any of those angles so if you're working with an actor who's very physically trained who's very kinesthetic then you can start from the body and open up the imagination if you've got somebody who's a little more headbound who likes to get inside the ideas who likes to wrangle with grammar and language and rhythm and all of those things but then if you start to get them to let that be concrete in the body to be geographical to let those ideas that are not just about here and now but are about here and now as opposed to tomorrow or yesterday <laughs> that those things have a, a geographical presence in space so that then you start to take the imagination and put it into the body or you start from the body and you start to let that light up the ideas in the mind or you start from the vibration in the sounds and you understand that those sounds themselves carry information carry either as we're saying almost an emotional content or can you know obviously they hold meaning <laughs> <laughs> they have to and one of the sort of conventional sores I think of a lot of voice work is the consonants carry the meaning and the vowels carry the emotion and lots of times you can say that's true but there are always <laughs> exceptions so the violence in the mouth of a of a muscular but voiceless sound so I'm talking about something like a t or a k tick, 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 mm. and the contact those things make with the roof of the mouth mm. 
And then you think about where the roof of the mouth is and how close that is to where the brain sits in the skull. You know, so by activating the tip of the tongue against the roof of the mouth, you are almost literally starting to tickle the brain into life. And you find that lots of those words, intellect, tickle the intellect is going to light things up at the top of the brain and in the top of the roof of the mouth, as opposed to the weight and the muscular physical body energy of those same tongue positions. So I take my t, -t that is devoiced, has no vibration to it, and I use the exact same movement of the tongue, but I put some vibration in it and I get a da-da. But therefore the weight of that da-da happens in a very different way from the t-t or the k-k, which turns itself into a gaga. So that da-ga-ga-ga takes me, is this a dagger? Takes me to a different kind of place in the body yeah. from something that lights up the brain. Uh, and we already made bell noises a little bit. So, you know, the differences between I, oh God, I see. On the page, <laughs> one stripe, that word, I. Could, it could hardly be less significant on a page. In the mouth, that is a huge traveling diphthong. It goes all the way from an R to an E, I. It takes time. Why, sigh, my, time, I. But even just in that noise, for most of us, in most of our own personal lexicons, that word I, the ego, is a fairly significant one. So that it takes time in the mouth, it has size in its thinking, and that shaping those sounds, giving them their own energies, giving them their own space to happen, starts to allow you to have a thought in more detail. So that if I'm allowing the word I, or the, or the word why, <laughs> to have its full length, I can start having my imagination, my thought, my idea, be a bigger, be a more problematic, be a more detailed thought. I'm, I'm waving my arms. <laughs> Wave away, it's great, it's fantastic. Um, you were talking about the sound gugu and gave us, yeah. uh, is it a dagger? Um, I'm afraid my brain went to Lady Gaga when you were talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's got a bounce to it, gaga. He's completely gaga. And, you know, gaga drops you out of the brain. So to be gaga is, is, is to not have the intellect in good shape. <laughs> not, I'm not saying she is. It's a name. It's a name. It's a name. <laughs> yeah, I feel like she's saying she is in that name. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, that's allowed. You know. <laughs> so I'm also where I'm bouncing quite a lot, and that's that's because I'm sitting. I'm sitting on a thing, which is very good for elongating the spine, which mm. is one of these bouncy balls. So um, I'm not. I'm not merely enthusiastic. I'm. I'm also sitting on air. But we welcome mere enthusiasm as well. <laughs> Please don't apologise for that. Um, I love the confluence of, in, of inspiration as both an intake of breath and a thing going on up here. And I guess, um, I mean, I presume that can't be, in, that can't be just a coincidence, can it? There must be an historical thing about I, by breathing in, you're taking yeah. in something, right? Yeah, and it is, it's, it's fresh. You can feel it's fresh. And if I, if I have my new thought with the same old breath, it's not gonna be quite as new a thought as if I allow it. And in fact, it's, it's in that intake of breath already before the breath goes in the kind of thought it is will colour the kind of breath that moves into me. Yeah. So a, a deep and dark and awful thought requires an inhalation that is of a different pace, of a different colour, than one that is a, uh, you know, that 
that is already that breath is already filled with content it's it's not just a technical thing for for allowing me to speak on stage breath is full of life it, it is life and again the relationship between the technical voice work by which i kind of mean the technique of vocal production or you know breath work it is of zero interest to me unless it is fueling the thing that is eventually going to come out of me which is a, a thought an idea and emotion so that we we talk a lot about rooting the breath about finding the foundation of the breath deep in the belly working the core abdominals working with strength and power and safety with the voice if we're really working deep in the body um, but also finding that deep core as i've already touched on it is a place where all those big things tend to cook you know fury and lust and you know love even they they live we talk about a gut response a gut reaction that that gut being activated so that when he's asking his actors to go for something huge and we're digging deep for breath that will allow us to go there we are reaching down into the well of big emotion that allows us to connect to those things and speak of them with power, with strength, but also with safety in large space. And then the other bit of breath that we we wake up is is across the diaphragm, this glorious umbrella-shaped muscle that sits just around the base of the rib cage under the lungs, but is a fabulously febrile place to play. The diaphragm, we have very little conscious control of it most of the time, um, but it responds to all sorts of impulses, like a, a little giggle, <laughs> or a little pant, <laughs> And a, and a pant, you know, <laughs> has immediately within it various kinds of content because it can take you, it can take you towards laughter. <laughs> it can take you towards the sob. <laughs> we all know about other kinds of exciting panting. Um, that, that life in that diaphragm, the kind of uh, uh, ability to tap into something that has a real physical, physiological truth to the vibration of the air again makes these words happen in the body in a way that can communicate itself to an audience in the space with you as opposed to being merely kind of kept up here in in the mind and only in the brain it's a it's allowing these channels to be responsive to one another okay thank you and i was going to ask you to give us some examples but you've rooted um so much of what you said brilliantly in examples so i won't do that um what you were talking about there about communicating to an audience brings me, on, brings me on to another thing I wanted to ask you. Um, so there's, there's been a phrase running through some of the things you've said so far, um, and it's a two word phrase. It's, it's the phrase, take on something. So helping actors take on the theater and take on the text is a really interesting idea um, that you've raised a couple of, of times now. And I guess I'm interested in that phrase because it could imply um, simply to do a small challenge or it could imply a fight, <laughs> an exhausting, <laughs> terrible, awful fight. Well, yeah, and I would also, I would also go to a, to a third one, and I, oh. I, I think I do use it quite consciously and quite deliberately because I think, I think sometimes it can feel like a battle. I'm, yeah. I'm taking on Shakespeare's text, mm -hmm. you know, I've got to, I've got to somehow struggle my way through it, and it, it, it is very often presented to people as something problematic, or people have take it, taken it on. <laughs> on board so that's the other taking on that i think of of i'm going to take on as in i'm going to take it inside myself i'm going to to bring the thing into a state of of being one with it 
so that yeah I can take it on in that way or I can take it on <laughs> into me um, and I you know there is a there is a struggle for lots of people coming to Shakespeare it, it can feel very alien it can feel very complex it can feel like there are all sorts of hidden rules and things that I've somehow got to absorb or find out about um, and I think one of the things that I'm quite keen to do you know I work not only with actors companies but I've done hundreds of workshops over the years with people of all ages from all sorts of countries in all sorts of ways uh, is this idea that if we allow ourselves instinctively to respond to the language by speaking it out loud, by distracting our brain that wants to try and be in command of meaning, that wants to try and control the text from the outset, if we allow ourselves first of all to encounter the language in a way that means we are having to be physical, that we are having to not understand with our mental faculties, but understand with our bodies, people can arrive at this language without all that backlog of, oh, I don't understand this and blah, 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 because you can immediately understand. For instance, if you've got a speech where ideas are tossing and turning and you're doing an exercise where I've asked you at every punctuation mark to change direction as you walk around the room, you are immediately having to manage your body, you're having to manage the other people in the room, your brain, your brain hasn't got the brain power available to be trying to go oh, oh what does this word mean what does this sentence mean i don't understand it but what you are taking on is a really physical sensation of a character's perhaps state of emotion if they're tossing and turning and going from one direction to the other and people end up breathless they end up confused they end up in a heightened state of emotion and you've already taken on therefore some organic information about this text that when you then start to sit down and struggle through what's this idea what's this idea you're not coming at it from on top you're coming at it with already something that is that is real and worthwhile and human yeah. before you start from the other end uh and so a lot of the work i mean cicely berry for instance who's the grand dame <laughs> of lots of uh, approaches to shakespearean text work almost all her exercises are to do with distracting our conscious brains so that you give the body and heart and mind another task to be tackling so that the unexpected truths of the text can bubble up without the actor trying to manipulate or trying to take charge of them. And it's in those unexpected discoveries that you can then take the next step of deciding to rediscover that undiscovered thing the next time you approach it. Uh, let that be the freshness. Um, Feldenkrais, I think it is, who's a movement practitioner, calls the brain the stiffest muscle of the body. It's kind of, in some ways, the least flexible. And so ideas that I have about how to deliver a line from up here are likely to be more trammeled or you know if i'm trying to come up with the most original way to say to be or not to be ideas i come up with from up here are likely to be more limited than if i truly try to <laughs> dig down into my own physical emotional memory resonances and connect to those words from within because it's the whole of myself that is unique and that therefore if 
if I come to these words and vibrate them with as much or all of myself as I can, that will lead to a unique utterance because I am the only human being who has ever arrived at these words with these particular vibrations, resonances, memories, possibilities. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. It's, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> easy peasy. But it's about dis dislodging um, or sidestepping particular relationships between text and mind and foregoing the body, I think is what you're telling me. And certainly working with students, but also working with performers, myself, I'm always encouraging them to, to read aloud um, and where they don't want to do that, to listen to any kind of audiobook or um, any other kind of source to, to hear, hear texts rather than encounter it on the page. And I'll certainly be sending them in the future to this video to help them think <laughs> about why, why that's well, I mean, I do, think, I do think there is a way in which we, we have largely in modern Western society, let's, you know, whittle ourselves down, uh, become quite disconnected from our bodies. You know, we, we, we bully them, we, we malfeed them, we don't give them enough exercise, we don't let them open up. We spend a lot of our lives sitting down, we spend a lot of our lives engaging with a screen. So that those, those trusting your body learning trusting your body the information your body gives you we've we've become quite shut off and there's a <laughs> see this is another thing there's a sort of i always call it for shorthand a sort of post-freudian thing about emotion being a thing that we shut away and we do not articulate so you see a lot of heightened emotion in modern film scripts and play scripts where it is not spoken you know it's all shut away and it's short sentences and we we don't actually articulate it and as a result expressing emotion has become a thing that we shut behind the teeth and we somehow clench down on and we're demonstrating the size of the thing inside of us now if you take a 35 line Shakespeare speech and try to deliver it all from that sense of squashed awayness it's going to become very limited it's going to become very difficult to listen to it's not going so what those characters are doing in a way that I think we've become very unused to is articulating with great detail or questioning or working through in great detail the thing that is going on inside of them. And it is happening live in that moment. They are tackling it. This is the first time these thoughts have moved through them, but they are thoughts which move through them out loud and in the body and unexpectedly. And so it's the difference between a, a, an emotion, a problem that is being really fully articulated in these Renaissance texts and ideas and emotions that are somehow clamped down into subtext and minimal text in a, in a modern sense, that you have to approach in a different kind of a way if you're going to let that fully articulated problem be truthful all the way through. I does that make any kind of sense? It's great, it's great. And I'm thinking about conversations in the period itself about emotion um, or affect, which is kind of an alternative word, um, and, and emotion as a word is all about moving out. E, yeah. e, and affect is sort of in some ways the opposite direction, but processing something that's coming in, I think. Yeah. Um, and th that's really fascinating. Um, Alison, I have, sorry, sorry, sorry. I have to write on that. There's a glorious exercise that it's always worth doing with a speech. Mm. So you can do the walking the text where you change direction on a punctuation mark, but there's also a wonderful thing that comes direct from what you've just been saying where you can try out clause by clause, mm. starting the thought right in you 
and allowing that thought to travel out on a gesture out into the world. At the next punctuation mark, you again travel outwards into the world. It might be a short phrase, it might be something much longer, but you're trying to really connect it to the gesture. You don't ever let that gesture go dead. Mm -hmm. Then you take the exact same speech, clause by clause, start that thought out in the world and bring oh. it towards you, let it enter your breast. Each punctuation mark brings a fresh thought from somewhere else in the space. And you suddenly find that a thought which felt like it belonged thrusting out into the world is equally powerful, but in a completely different way. If it's a thought that arrives at you, uh, Richard III, when he wakes up from his nightmares um, and has the thought about uh, asking for mercy, that there's a massive difference between going, have mercy, Jesu, and going, have mercy, Jesu. Mm. That, that moving outward with an idea or having an idea come towards you. So that exact thing about emovere or mm. affect. Am I, am I going in pursuit of this idea or is this idea coming after me? Mm. <laughs> am, I, am I offering and inviting and going in that direction or, or am I seducing you towards me? That, <laughs> and that's about, you know, the infinite, the infinite possibilities in this language, the, the built-in ambiguity that he is having to write in order not to be hauled to prison and censored, and blah, 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 this balancing act that is constantly within the language of opposition, of one idea being set up against another idea, or an idea that seems to be going in that direction, but then can come in this direction. Yeah. And the reason we're still playing with it 400 years later is that you can come and you can make any of those ideas do anything. Mm. Thank you. I love that exercise. Sorry. And just because of the framing from the screen, I'm forever going to think of exercise as kind of Bee Gees or fruit picking. <laughs> uh, the real key, the real key, if you're going to do it, is that you have to make sure that it, that it starts physically in contact with you okay. and goes out into the world. And you have to make sure that when it comes to you, it has to physically touch you. It's mm. no good kind of stopping here just in front of me because then right. I'm not truly letting that thought affect me. Um, wow thank you there's a real precision to this so you set up an exercise <laughs> and then you see people being a bit floppy with it or not really fulfilling it but it's the more disciplined and rigorous you are with the rules of a game the more it will reveal unexpectedly to you if you follow it through okay great thank you um Alison, as we're moving towards the end of the conversation you've been talking about the importance of live vibrations um and i just wonder how you feel about what's happening to all of us now in terms of our bodies, imaginations, um, and our, our inability to access um, one, another. <laughs> one, another's, one another's vibrations. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, and it's only, it's only really a sort of more intense version of a, of a, thing that is happening anyway of people kind of connecting via screens and and less and less actual talking even on the phone uh, or in person so you know it's almost like a concentrated version now in lockdown of a of a trend that i would suggest is is around and i i'm aware <laughs> that i do operate in a sort of oral aural that that's my chief intelligence if you want to use those uh, jargons and phraseologies um but that i do think there is something fundamental to our species 
about the sharing of vibration. I think we're a storytelling species. This the thing that happened around the campfires after the day's hunt was a was a sharing of stories, was a sharing of ideas. And there's an argument that perhaps singing even predates language, that shared vibration was a way of being communal, of of literally getting in tune with one another. That if you can make your vibrations travel in the same way, you you connect uh, with people and that response that these days we have I suppose more often with music than with language is a difference between us in our highly visual highly literate society from how sound was perceived perhaps um, for Shakespeare where I think it probably was a much more concrete presence uh, most people in those days received complex information through the ear. They, they didn't receive it off a page through the eye. And so their ability to handle those things was much more acutely tuned. But I think that we do still have that very profound relationship to sound present with us. You know, when you, you always know the voice of someone you love. You, you recognize it immediately. There's no shadow of a doubt that that vibration is the vibration of that person. And if you think about babies in the womb, their perception of the mother, first and foremost, is of sound vibration, is, is there and is present. And it's documented now that babies can recognize their mother's voice immediately upon emerging. Uh, and now several more voices as well, if they've had a father who's been talking at the belly or whatever it might be. Um, and I think we... I think we respond to that in a different way than we respond to sound modulated through technology. So I do think there might well be after this a reflourishing of that desire to be there in person. And we might think that that's about touch and about sharing the same air, but I think also it will be about receiving those vibrations in person again, uh, being moved by the people we are with as they speak to us yeah yeah thank you very much um we're finishing these videos by asking um what the word literature means to you uh whether it's a useful word an unhelpful word where it sits in your in your kind of professional or personal praxis do you have any thoughts <laughs> well i mean in my personal practice i'm a i'm a voracious reader and always have been um i i read english at university and and that's what they say in university terms or they did in those days maybe they don't these days you know you read a subject um uh, as you rightly pointed out we we wouldn't have these play texts had somebody not written them down for us so we we need them to exist on the page but i do uh, i do think with with shakespeare's language i think there's a there is a danger in them falling into too far in people's heads into a sort of literature bracket uh, that they can be really hard to tackle if what you are doing is trying to look at them on a page. And I'm delighted to hear that you get your students to speak out loud or anybody should should say these things out loud, regardless of how much or how little you're understanding comprehending of meaning as you do it you will start to understand other things and so the out loudness I suppose doesn't really tally with the word literature which I think in most people's brains would be a thing in a book but I you know the detail of of words on a page and their relationship to words in the body is is clearly one that I spend time investigating and diving into and I think for instance going to the first folio texts 
can be really revelatory for a speaker of this these words compared to many modern editions which i think have been punctuated and overcorrected for a reader principally in the putting in of abundant extra full stops <laughs> that nicely divide up segments of information but that when you are the speaker when you are the character actually a semicolon or a comma very often is the thing that is in the first folio and it's showing you that that thought is has a continuity has a has a, a an, an uncontrolledness to it that modern editions like to batten down on yeah. so a precise literature a literature that takes me back to something as close as possible and we know we know that's not you know, that wasn't Shakespeare who wrote those down and, and they're collected and gathered and thank goodness they were. But to, to really pay close attention to words on a page and let them travel into the body, that does seem to me like a really worthwhile journey to be taking. So I'm, I'm not against literature. I just like it to come alive. Yes, thank you. We're doing a video in the next few weeks with... Um, a wonderful scholar called Jennifer Richards who's just written a book on um, reading aloud in Shakespeare's in the in Shakespeare's period um, and we'll make sure to link with two videos because I think there's some really interesting stuff there. Jenny yeah. too's got fascinating things to say about full stops and what on earth a sentence is in the 16th yeah. century. <laughs> yeah 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 well a period they you know it's a period uh, it takes a, it takes an amount of time, yeah. and if you put in an extra period, then you have curtailed the period of that thought. Um, so yeah, I all of that, all of that. <laughs> I'd be fascinated. So much advice um, for life from this video: avoid full stops. Um, <laughs> I break with as many people as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Collaboration and just um, moving moving between text and voice and imagination and body. Um, I'm really inspired and excited by all of that. So, um, yeah, thank you very, very much. I'm just looking through my notes and thinking about all the things I want to summarise, but I don't think I can even try. Uh, but that's been a rich, exciting um, conversation. I like to defy summary. <laughs> <laughs> You've definitely done that. I can't, I can't insert my own full stop is what I'm trying to say here. Really. There shouldn't be one until you stop breathing. Let, oh, okay, well, I'll try not to do that now. Um, let's finish with some sort of semicolon or comma. Let's see if we can okay. finish the film <laughs> with, a, with a very unfull stop. Uh, yeah, a semi-stop. I don't know how to put that. But anyway, thank you very much, Alison. Let's pause. Let's it's pause. lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. <laughs>